Hi, welcome back to another episode of Womanhood in the Rough. From your grandparents' generation to your parents' generation, mental health was something that was not talked about. And now, with this new generation, Generation Z, we are now talking about mental health more than ever. But what does that look like in the church and in the Christian aspect? And unfortunately, in that aspect, the church is majorly lacking. I get the privilege today to talk to my friend Lisa, who actually goes to my church. I think this is something that needs to be talked about more, and I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, uh, talk about your family, uh, when you guys met, how long you guys have been married, your kids, just everything. <laughs> so I've been married to Joel five years this February. Um, we have seven children between the two families, but it's a blended family. So he brings one child who was not his by birth, but was his ex-wife's. Um, he got her when she was about six years old, so he never was able to adopt her. Um, and then she has a child, so our grandson, he has three children by birth from his ex-wife. I have three children. Her oldest one is adopted. She, um, we got her when she was nine months old. She had been in 13 different homes. So she had severe reactive attachment disorder, went through a lot of therapy. She's actually engaged to be married now. Yeah. So she learned to attach, obviously. Um, and then I have two by birth after her. Um, and my youngest, actually, Joel adopted, too. So we have kind of an unusual blended stepchildren adoption <laughs> family. Um, funny thing, Joel and I both grew up either on the hill or at the base of the hill at the Bible school for for new tribes, um, ethnos now, Joel, Joel's dad was chairman and a teacher of the Bible school when I went through Bible school there, but he was, he, he was born and raised up there on the hill, obviously, because his parents were there. My whole family on my mom's side, she, she's, um, one of 14 children, 12 of them went through the Bible school. Two of them went through Moody. So I grew up, my mom and my dad married. They lived in one of the apartments at the bottom of the hill. I grew up just going up the hill all the time. And my aunts and uncles taking me up the hill. So, but Joel and I didn't really know each other until later. Um, he kind of remembers some funny stories of when I was in the Bible school but other than that, I didn't really remember him much. I remembered his brother more because <laughs> he's a little bit younger. But, um, yeah. And then we we reconnected via Christian Mingo, of all places. <laughs> kind of another funny story, but a long one. <laughs> but, yeah, that's how, yeah, it was just kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Okay, so the reason I have you on here is we had talked at church and you had told me about what you do for work. And this really interested me. And I think a lot of people need to hear more about it and more 
of the positive aspect of what you do. Um, so yeah, I want you to explain what you do for work. Okay. So um, right now I'm taking a break, unemployed. <laughs> but um, when I was 10, um, I had I had revealed to my parents that I've been groomed and sexually abused since I was like five years old. Um, and so at that time, back then, there was no counseling or therapy, Christian counseling of any kind, let alone counseling or therapy for kids that just didn't exist. And so um, my parents, you know, kept asking around in the local churches here in the area, kept trying to find help. Um, I had to go to a class with a bunch of adults and I was like the only child in the room. Um, and that was kind of a state mandated thing at the time. Um, but coming out of that, I told my mom, I want to grow up. I want to do counseling and I want to learn how to do it for kids and adolescents. So that was kind of a mission that I went on and it's been 40 years but during that time God took me through a lot of different things um, because there was no training in that field it didn't exist it was still in research um, so for 20 years more I did early childhood development and um, I focused on women's and children's ministry, church ministries. And so I learned a lot about like early childhood development, working with kids, working with women, because that was the only route I could take at the time. Then I went to the university and um, started working on my degree in psychology because then school counselors were a big thing. So I thought, well, that's one way I can learn more about working with kids. So I did some school counseling. I was part of a research team that looked at how to help kids become successful through school and through life. Um, and then during that time of my graduate studies, I also started volunteering for a really brand new thing in Milwaukee, and that was where they started doing group therapy for children, especially girls who were sexually abused. So it was kind of a new program. So I helped co-lead with that, um, learned a lot, <laughs> made a lot of mistakes, but learned a lot. <laughs> and, um, and now it has turned into Pathfinders in Milwaukee. So um, Lucy, who trained me through that group therapy, she took, it was called hand, Hands to Hands, and then it turned into this whole huge program at Pathfinders for youth who were runaways. And usually they were runaways because of severe abuse. Um, I also worked at the rescue mission, and then I also started volunteering at Drop-In Center for Trafficked Women and Children. Um, did some group with them again learned a lot because there was still some research about what is trauma therapy what is successful and it's only been in like the last five years that we have the evidence for all that research over all those years so yeah and now that's where I'm at opening my own practice 
Okay, so what over the years you kind of mentioned some of the people that you had worked with. Um, so I kind of want you to like expand on that of like more of the different groups of people because you did work with children, you worked with people who were trafficked. So yeah. So um, with uh, with the children. Um, I think what, what happened was I was part of this research team um, with the uh, schools in Milwaukee. And it was back then there was this whole push for like schools within schools. And Milwaukee Public Schools was becoming such a huge entity. And they were um, losing, they were getting sanctions by the state because of their failing scores. So the University of Milwaukee asked a research team to come in and help work with the Department of Public Instruction on how can we bring up their scores, where, what are we missing, what's wrong. So I joined that team, and a lot of it overlapped with the other work I was doing, volunteer work I was doing, um, looking at development and looking at what, what allows certain people, certain children to grow up and be resilient and become successful. And so one of the keys we found across all age groups was connection. And so we realized in the, in the research that if, if a child can connect to at least one person, it changes their entire success scores and their entire pathway through life. And we were able to kind of follow that some of them over the years as they, you know, graduated from high school and got jobs. So, Yeah. Um, so we actually started developing curriculum for it. And, um, I, I, um, at the time it was only for the high school. So I started taking it because I came from an early childhood perspective. So I started taking the curriculum saying, I wonder if we can develop some of these same type of approaches for younger children. And so I changed some of the curriculum, started doing some of the stuff with younger kids all the way into the elementary school. And then the early childhood um, preschool where I was working was also developing a, a similar approach that came out of Italy. Both of the researches came out of Italy. Um, and we found that that school, the whole culture changed. And the kids changed the way they developed, the way they connected. And it, um, so then I when I was all done and I graduated, um, then I started working with the um, trafficking task force, um, and they connected me with a drop-in center, a Christian drop-in center, and so I started doing some art group meetings, home visits, um, kind of learning more about trafficking, and then that led me to the last job I had that I was at for about eight years. And that was working with severe mental illness um, clientele in Milwaukee that were, a lot of them were involuntarily put into the program and a lot of the women were trafficked and had severe mental illness uh, issues as well as um, drug and alcohol issues. So, yeah. Okay, so that kind of leads into my next question. Um, with all of the work that you did, 
how did you at the end of the day learn to just like leave it because that's like a lot for anyone to take on to deal with all of that so I don't I don't know that anybody can leave it all there in this type of field they don't Um, people who enter this kind of work do it from a passion it's their life passion so they really don't leave it at work but one thing that um that we found was that if you build a team of support, it helps alleviate the distress because a lot of counselors drop out of the field, social workers drop out of the field because of burnout, and they end up with PTSD too, and then they need therapy themselves. And so having a support team being able to seek out consultation with others um, and just dealing with your own issues, processing what's happening, because you can't take all that on, all those burdens. It's impossible. But since marrying Joel, he, he has the ability to hear things and then kind of forget. Um, And so it makes it easier for me to, like, process certain feelings with him, certain thoughts with him. And then it's funny because he's like, as soon as your head hits the pillow, you are out. (laughs) I go to sleep very fast. Um, Didn't used to be that way, but when I put it to to rest, I put it to rest. It's time. I let it go. It's a whole new morning. I don't wake up with that whole, you know, I let it go. It's I don't ever carry it over the night. Don't go to sleep on it because you can't. Um, but another thing I did was I started focusing on my life first, which was Philippians 310. Um, it's uh, my aim is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And so just having those conversations with God at night and in the morning all throughout the day, just when I'm in the car, anytime I have any downtime, just literally just talking to God and then leaving it in the Holy Spirit's hands to, you know, help me, guide me through whatever is going to come. But I know that like that verse says, you know, there's going to be sufferings. So that's the only way. Okay, so why did you choose to start your own business? You were at this one place for eight years. You are now starting from the bottom. Yeah. um, Like I said, my mission when I was 10 was to someday be able to counsel children and adolescents. That was my dream. And... God has allowed that dream to come to fruition now. Um, It was the right time. I knew it was the right time to step away. I already had a lot of the training. I had a lot of experience. And I've gone through, you know, I've attended one, two, three different Bible schools and universities as well as secular. Um, Just 
it's just, you know, God's led everything up to this moment where I think it's the right time to open up my own practice. Okay, so Christians and counseling. So a lot of times you hear a lot of different things from a lot of different perspectives. Some say go, some say you just need to pray more. So what are your thoughts on this? Huh. <laughs> um, so <laughs> prayer, um, I'm not going to discount prayer. Uh, prayer is a, an important aspect of healing. It's, um, in fact, <laughs> the funny thing is, is a lot of the research that's coming out now, a lot of the studies now are saying that it's, it's so important to address spirituality in people. And one of the um, components that they put in therapy is prayer. <laughs> Um, one of the last trainings I took recently was, um, talking about the importance of prayer and having that as part of the therapy process. Um, but if you look at scripture, prayer wasn't the only thing. Okay. So you have your relationship with God, right? And that's prayer. And it's very intentionally done. But God created us also to be social beings with other people. And we live in a world where we connect with other people. That's how he created us. And unfortunately, we live in a broken world. Um, back in the Garden of Eden, it was prayer. <laughs> they talked with God. They walked with him. They, it was just the two of them. But then sin entered and everything changed. And so if you look at from the time of once sin entered, God in his all-knowing, all-powerful way um, allowed for certain experiences to be documented in Scripture where there's certain approaches. And, it, and the funny thing is, is that if you look at trauma counseling now like I said back when I was little there was nothing it was still in research it was still like a whole new concept people discounted it but a lot of the stuff they're finding now that works is, is in scripture um so I and that's like oh that'd be a huge topic <laughs> um for example look at look at Psalms okay with David it's literally a journal, right? And it's David's way of journaling his deepest hurt and pain and suffering. And he's journaling about it. And he's not afraid to just put it all down. But then you see where he, he comes through this healing process every time. And he's, you know, coming out of the depression, out of the suicidal thoughts, out of the self-harm. And he's reconnecting with God and he's finding peace and he's finding joy again. Um, and so journaling is one approach that's out there. It's a very important approach. And that is an example of journaling. Um, you have examples in scripture where nutrition, I mean, just the fact that like, look at Elijah who was running for his life. Okay. And he's, out in the wilderness and he is completely in despair and what does God do? 
He doesn't tell him, oh, pray, talk to me, and you'll feel better. No, he brings ravens, crows, and then he brings you know, water in the desert to him, and he provides physical nourishment to him. Um, and so we have to approach it from a holistic way, not just the mind, not just the soul, but also the body. But there's so many other examples. <laughs> no, I definitely agree 100% with you on that. I think a lot, I mean, now within the past few years, we've, yeah, like you said, seen more research on different things with like prayer and like, even like when I was in counseling, I noticed like the different approach I had with a specific counselor and like compared to like years prior and like how it was very different. Um, and so going from that, I want you to briefly, cause we could talk forever on this subject, but talk about EMDR cause I did it, thought it was amazing. And I know <laughs> you have some thoughts. <laughs> so, um, EMDR is one of those, one of those approaches that was actually just introduced. So here, I'm going to tell you the history of EMDR cause it's really funny. Actually, it's kind of. <laughs> About the time when I was 10 to, you know, 15 years old, in those early years of going into high school, and I was like, I want to do this, there just wasn't much out there. And there was a lot of, like, testing. A lot of it was cognitive approaches or behavioral approaches. So you hear about, like, studies about, like, Pavlov's dogs, where they train them with the bell, when to eat. And so a lot of it was, like, conditioned behavior. But there wasn't a lot to do with how do you deal with trauma when it doesn't work? Because cognitive behavioral approaches don't work. And they actually can make things worse and put a person into more depression. So Francine Shapiro, she was a student in psychology at the time. And she had a lot of distressing things that happened in her own life. And she would go walking in a park. And she found when she was walking in the park that if she looked back and forth, back and forth with her eyes, just taking in everything in the park, her distressing thoughts became more manageable. And so she, she proposed this idea that eye movement, that back and forth eye movement, could help alleviate distress and trauma. And so she presented it to the school she was at, and they decided to do this whole research about it. Well, a lot of psychologists out there were like, no way, this would not work. And they all thought it was crazy. And so at the time it was called EMD, Eye Movement Desensitization. Um, and then it turned into, as research developed and they started finding that it was actually credible and working, they decided to add the R, which is reprocessing. So in the beginning, it was just to alleviate some of the stress, but then they found that eye movement desensitization also led to the ability to process the memories of trauma. Um, and so, now, now that we have all of this MRI scans and other types of abilities to see the, 
neuropathways in the brain. They can actually follow the electrical um, pathways that are happening. They actually can prove now what's happening in EMDR. And, um, and they also have found that you don't necessarily have to do eye movement with a light or following a finger. Um, you can actually do it through body movement, which is where I'm more interested because kids are not going to sit here and follow a light back and forth or follow a finger back and forth. They're going to get bored. And so um, play therapists um, decided that in order to allow kids to trauma, trauma process, they could take the ideas of EMDR, which is bilateral stimulation from left side of the brain to right side of the brain, and do body movements back and forth, back and forth. So have them march or have them um, butterfly kiss with their arms. So you cross your arms and then you tap left, right, left, right on your, like on my shoulder arm area. Um, tap on your knees, left, right, left, right, left, right. And you get that like rhythm going. They also found that if they scribble left, right, left, right with a crayon, it does the same thing. And so what EMDR does is that movement, back and forth movement, it, it kind of, I guess the easiest way to say is it, it removes the roadblock in the brain to allow um, the body to, to accept stress. And then it, we call it bottom up when it comes to reprocessing. So the idea is if you can alleviate stress and you can get a person into a, a relaxed state, so then it developed also into um, the nervous system. So now we have studies actually also not just with brain scans, but with the nervous system and the vagal nerve that goes to every major organ in the body. They can actually follow it and follow that brain processing and how it moves um, from the bottom of the brain to the top of the brain where the memories stick and it shuts down your brain. So you have to reopen that process without re-traumatizing the person. So EMDR just removes those blocks uh, that are stuck in the brain, kind of in those pathways that keep blocking it from processing, but also allow the person not to feel such intense pain while they're doing it. It's, it's a weird, crazy thing. I know. It is kind of funny how it was discovered, but that's how science works, is a lot of it's trial and error, learning things. I mean, DBT, I don't know if you've heard of DBT. Um, it's dialectical behavior therapy. It's used by a lot of hospitals um, for inpatient care. So if you have, like, a... A psychiatric break like Rogers uses DBT that's their whole approach DBT was discovered by a woman who kept going in and out of the hospital constantly hospitalized and they said she was insane and then um, she was diagnosed with a personality disorder because she had gone through so much trauma and so she was like cognitive behavioral therapy is not working this whole brain conditioning is not working so she developed this whole new approach that came out of CBT called DBT, and it's so effective that hospitals use it now for their inpatient work, um, especially for children and adolescents. And they've they've adapted it with some of the EMDR approaches with the movements and coloring. So they have kids like dance, do like dance off, 
because it's that back and forth movement. They'll have them do expressive art therapy, working with sand, like moving the sand back and forth or watching water move back and forth, like in a rocking. So babies even, attachment therapy, you rock a baby back and forth. I mean, it works to soothe anybody, that whole rocking movement back and forth. So, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I absolutely love hearing you talk about this. I could, <laughs> you could do a whole other episode on everything. Um, okay, so kind of moving from that, um, organizations, um, specifically like mission organizations, um, what can be done better with member care and their missionaries? I have personal experience with this um, and seeing the lack of training when it comes to having counselors, like for example, when missionaries come off the field and have experienced severe trauma from whatever has happened in that field. And then them coming back and counselors are trying to do that and re-traumatizing families. Mm So, (laughs) I've seen, okay, so trauma-informed care, okay, there's a huge push now, especially now that we have proof, we have evidence that shows that it's so important, and it's so important for kids, even from, you know, high school, childhood, like that research team I was on, that if they even connected with one person, it alleviated a lot of the trauma and stress. Like one girl was set on fire by a gang in Milwaukee, and then she watched them kill her uncle in front of her. So if she could connect with one person in the school, she would keep coming back. And if she keeps coming back, she's going to get an education, right? And then she's going to learn how to read, and she's going to be able to develop skills that are going to help her get out of that situation in the future. Okay? Maybe we couldn't remove her from the community area where it was happening because we couldn't. They have to stay in there, right? Missionaries go back to the field. So they go back into the fire, a lot of them. So then you end up seeing them, they, they become like like veterans from war, is what you see with missionaries. Some of them come off the field shell-shocked and completely like, like a military person where they're hyper-vigilant, hyper-roused. Certain sounds will set them off. Certain movements that they see out of the corner of their eyes will set them off. And then you see the other missionaries who come off the field and they look like, they look frayed. Like they're just unraveled. And they're in this other state of shutdown. And that's that whole nervous system I was talking about where it's like, the body goes into different states, okay? And so if if a member care team could understand that these missionaries are coming off the field, and even within that same family, there could be different people in that same family in different states, different levels. So you have to approach them differently, and you have to meet them where they're at. And... We in trauma counseling always say work from the bottom up, okay? 
Are their basic needs met? Are they clothed? Are they fed? Are they sleeping? Because if they're not, then I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't go anywhere with them about what happened. I wouldn't talk about it. Because you have to meet basic needs first. It's just like God did in the Bible with, you know, Elijah or Job or Jonah even. um, That you have to meet their basic needs first and allow them to go into a state of rest before they can go anywhere with the trauma and the processing. So I always say approach them from a trauma-informed care perspective of meet them where they're at and then let them guide, let them direct you. I think if we could put every missionary who comes off the field into a spa retreat, (laughs) you know, seriously, like where they can like choose. I, I need to hear music or I need to go into a room that's quiet or I need to walk outside. Nature has its own, you know, healing properties. Um, I just think that a member care team just needs to learn to do that and not try to get them to talk about what happened. When they're ready, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But, yeah. I, I think that's interesting that you said that, you know, if we could put them into a spa, that would be great. I think that, you know, living overseas and being in such a dark environment 24 7 and like coming back to America it's like churches don't understand that either like not only are mission organizations like maybe lacking in that department but also like the home system where like missionaries are supposed to come back to don't necessarily understand that they need a break mm-hmm. and they need they I've seen a lot of churches you know push missionaries to keep going and they're like you're doing God's work like why do you need a break kind of thing like it's just crazy Um, (laughs) but yeah well I, I mean okay so look at look at Jesus here on earth right he lived in a human body and his human body needed food and needed shelter and needed care right because he was human just like us but there's so many examples of him needing rest like look at him going down into the boat and he's sleeping through a storm and I mean, the people, his disciples are like, why are you not up here? What are you doing? I mean, I think churches do that. They just expect missionaries to be this all-powerful, never-suffering, you know, and that's not true. If Jesus could feel pain in a human form, how can we not expect missionaries to feel the same and not want them to also go down in the boat and sleep through a storm? because they need it. I mean, look at him when he goes to the garden and he's under such great distress that, you know, he's sweating blood. His body's literally breaking from the inside. That's that whole nervous system that goes from the brain to the heart. We can see it now. We can follow it now in science. And we can, you know, and they can describe what happened to him now because they know. And what did God, what did he do? Jesus went into a garden 
to pray, to talk to God, but he didn't just go in the garden to pray. There's that whole thing about, is it just prayer? No, what did he do? He asked his closest friends to go with him because he needed connection. And they would fall asleep, and then he'd go and wake them up. And, and yes, he was God, so he understood that they needed rest, and he knew what was coming. But he also needed that connection. And we have to surround ourselves with that connection when we're in such distress. And we need rest. If our bodies don't go into a state of rest, it breaks. Just like Jesus' body broke. And his heart literally was bursting. And eventually he would have died just from that. But he had to die on the cross, right? <laughs> wow. I like, don't know where to go from there. <laughs> um, okay, so who should get therapy or counseling? So coming full circle and... Uh, anybody. Anybody who feels they need that. I mean, if you don't have a support system where you can connect with others and you can process safely, then you need therapy. It doesn't matter what age or who you are. Even therapists need therapists. You know, we have to go and seek our own processing because we can't carry the burden ourselves. It's, it's too great a burden for any human to carry. And Jesus said, you know, when he said, take my yoke upon you, it wasn't that we were taking the burden on us because he literally was carrying the yoke himself. He was the bigger ox. We're just the little one that he picks up with the yoke. <laughs> and we just get to go for the ride. He literally just carries us with it. Um, and so I think that's what we have to do with others is if you carry such a great burden, then stop and ask somebody else to care, carry that with you, to take it on with you. It makes it so much lighter and easier. And so, but so many people wait until they are so distressed and their body is going through so many issues that they, they, they actually develop medical concerns. And so then you, now you're treating not only, you know, the mental and spiritual well-being, but you're also having to treat their physical well-being because they waited so long. I think people carry their burdens secretly, and, and that's not how it was supposed to be. Okay, so I could ask you a million more questions, um, but my last question is more of a fun one. You can do whatever you want with this one. <laughs> um, what is your unpopular opinion or hot take? My unpopular opinion? Yep, anything. Be anything. Ha! Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you asking, like, from a typical Christian church perspective? Anything. It can be as deep or shallow as you want. Oh, okay. I've had some that are like, I don't like coffee. I've had some that are like, I think that we're doing communion wrong. So like, all sorts of different things. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I really put you on the spot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um... I think 
I think churches could do more to meet the need of domestic violence with women and children. I think that they're too afraid to touch that topic or they're not ready to let go of legalistic thinking about headship and submission. And I think that's an unpopular opinion in a lot of churches. And I know my sister is working on advocacy for that and her, she's lost a lot of friends over it. And so I've been there. I lost friends back in the day when I pushed for counseling and mental health and the church accepting that. And I, I see a shift, but I think it could go so much further. It's just not there yet. 100% agree with that one. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much um, yeah. for letting me interview you. And yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think walking away from this, I have always been deeply passionate about mental health, but also just thinking more about in what ways the church and the body of Christ can do better. And even going into some of those things that are not talked about, like the ways, you know, even mission organizations are not equipped to deal with the trauma that missionaries have from on the field. And we even talked about this more after I ended the interview. But that is something that I went through personally. And it seems so, and of course, you know, all of this is very new to research that's been done within the past, like, five, six years. More things are coming out. Mental health is becoming more and more of a thing that is being talked about. And so I think the church needs to step up and kind of get with the times and be okay with talking about these things and even talking about things like domestic violence and uh, domestic abuse and what those situations call for and how the church can love on those people. I have such a blast making these episodes for you guys and interviewing different women in different stages of life. So what you can do to help me out is leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and also share this with your friends and family. This is Elise Feathers and I'll see you next time on Women Hidden the Rough.